using what you know, at least in comparative public sector budgeting and financial management. In this set of slides, we're going to continue with our case analysis, uh, hopefully giving you a bit more practice on how to open a budget, how to spot very quickly the very important trends that you're seeing in that budget, which should tell you something about the priorities of the government at that time, and hopefully of the people um, with whom that government represents, and we'll also be uh, trying to refine your ability to use models from the other courses that you're sitting, as well as incorporate your reading into your analysis. So without further ado, let us begin. As we begin, as we move forward, it's somewhat useful to look back to see what ground we've covered so far. Uh, the schema in front of you shows basically what we've been doing so far in the course and the goal that we're hopefully trying to work toward. Uh, as you see, uh, in the past four or five weeks, we've been building the separate components of the course, which hopefully you're starting to put together in your mind as you go through the various cases. Uh, we've done some cost-benefit analysis. Uh, we've looked at social welfare analysis. Uh, we've looked at uh, social costs and benefits. You can think about the cost of the Brooklyn Bridge. You can think about the police in El Paso. You can think about our Turks and Georgians. Um, much less to date, only because of the time we've had available. We haven't looked so much at the political, how the budget represents a political equilibrium between various interests in the society. And we haven't had such a uh, deep look into games and thinking about each expenditure as the equilibrium outcome of a game played between various agents working in the government. Uh, but hopefully if we have time in the course, we'll try and get to that, because in my opinion that's the, the coolest part of the course. Um, as, you, as you've also been experiencing in your weekly studies, uh, we've been learning some intangibles. We've been learning study skills. We've been thinking about how to put the various material in the course together. Uh, how to do synthesis. Remember, synthesis is taking disparate ideas and putting them together. Uh, we've been working on our analytical skills. Uh, remember, analysis is how to look at a problem and break it into tiny bits, which uh, you can manage more easily. And, of course, we've been thinking about how to present our findings, uh, not only with PowerPoint slides, but also to a limited extent through uh, written policy briefs. Uh, from these skills, we've been thinking about how to take the results of our analyses and quantify them in Excel, how to evaluate many of the working hypotheses that we develop in Excel, and how to look at other quantitative methods in financial management. Uh, there was a handout uh, showing a little bit about how to do compounding, how to find the present value of uh, future revenues, future expenditures, etc. Uh, so hopefully you've had a chance to look at that material and hopefully even practice using Excel. And finally, if everything goes according to plan, uh, you should have all the skills you need in order to impress your future minister or if you will be a consultant someday to go out and advise cabinets uh, with your brilliant PowerPoint slides and with your smashing uh, policy briefs. Uh, 
but in any case, as you've seen, this is a course m more in thinking skills than in the particulars of, of uh, financial management or any particular subject. Particulars fade. Uh, skills last a lifetime. And so hopefully you're getting better intuitions about how to define a very concrete problem from the very nebulous problems posed to us in our everyday working life. Uh, you've had a little bit of practice using all these fancy intellectual models that us academics are sitting in the uh, ivory towers scribbling away so that you can use them in your daily work. Um, we've looked a bit at confronting the, our use of models with data in order to try and assess, well, which theory better presents the problem I'm looking at. Uh, maybe I can make a new theory which better explain these data. And of course, most importantly, and the most problematic skill, particularly in North America, is critical thinking. Uh, looking at a, a set of analyses and saying, I just don't believe this guy. Um, I don't care how many Nobel Prizes he's won. Uh, these, are the these are the reasons why uh, this analysis is flawed in my opinion. So, let's get to it. You remember that uh, any case study uh, starts from or stems from our attempt to define a, a policy useful question. Uh, what I've done here is I've dug up a recent budget from Argentina. It's not on the syllabus and that's why I thought it would be an interesting case study so that you could take away some of the intuitions from this case in order to use them in the other cases on the syllabus. So, you have in front of you this very big budget from Argentina and uh, as usual the, the uh, question is something like, the Argentine budget is bad, discuss. And so of course you don't have very much to go on, you know that your editor has given you a deadline to produce some useful copy by tomorrow and so where do you begin? Well, not the, remember we were discussing three ways of trying to get your, your brain wrapped around a budget. The first way was to identify the thesis statement. The second way was to look uh, particularly at extremes, because it's those extremes or unusual observations which tell us very much about what's going wrong and what's going right in a budget. And the third way, which we haven't covered until now, is to select some minor but interesting question in the budget, hopefully uh, that small question will give us some broader insights into the overall budget. Uh, in theory, uh, all budgetary units should be working the same way, thinking the same way, accounting for revenues the same way, etc. And therefore the intuitions that we get by looking at a small problem hopefully tell us about the general philosophies and practices throughout the, the budget sector writ large. So you see in front of you uh, the um, a uh, reporting of the budget, a multi-year budget from Argentina and what I've done is that in front of you you see uh, several expenses, uh, priority expenses. So right away that, that tells you well that might be an interesting area of the budget to look at. So we have these priority uh, expenses in education, in science and technology and 
I was interested in the amount of pesos spent on education, science and technology, etc. But in order to get a real feel for what those pesos represent, I, I found it useful to think of expenditure in terms of something that I deal with every day. Uh, a hospital, for example. Uh, you can walk around a hospital, you can see patients and doctors. It's very physical, it's very real. So when you say that um, you're giving up four hospitals in order to preserve wildlife in a country, uh, then, then it suddenly becomes very tangible to you, as opposed to just talking about millions of pesos or Turkish lira or uh, British pounds. Uh, so in the graph you see in front of you, what I've attempted to do is I've attempted to plot uh, the series you see on the slide as well, uh, education and science, but I haven't plotted them in currency units. Instead, I've plotted them as a percent of the budget of a hospital, which is reported in this budget also, uh, the Dr. Baldormer Sommer Hospital. Uh, it's, there's a picture on the slide as well in the lower right-hand side, so you can get a feel for what this hospital kind of looks like. And as you see, uh, spending on science and particularly education has risen in terms of the number of hospitals Argentines could have got for those same amount of resources. So, for example, you see between the period of 2007 and 2010, Argentines are giving up a larger number of these hospitals, roughly 200 at the beginning of the period and roughly 250 toward the end of the period. They're giving up progressively more hospitals in order to divert their national resources into education. Uh, similarly, we see a, a trade-off in spending on science. And you remember we were talking about this concept of opportunity cost, uh, the, the most basic fundamental uh, idea concept in economics. And opportunity cost tells us, well, if we want to spend on something else, we've got to give up another thing. Uh, that's why economics is the study of scarcity. And so when I buy uh, chocolates, I'm necessarily giving up roller coaster rides. So in the same way, as a budget, as a society, if we decide to educate one more child, we never want to think about the number of dollars, the number of pesos that educational expenditure represents. Instead, we want to get a very solid feel for the, the other kinds of things that we're giving up as a society. And so I thought that plotting uh, the, the number of hospitals as the numeraire, as, as, the, as the point of comparison, I thought that would be a very useful way of starting to build these intuitions of opportunity cost. Uh, so that hopefully in your career, when you see uh, a set of data of revenue or uh, expenditure, you're not thinking in terms of dollars, uh, which, which is very abstract. You're thinking in terms of the other goodies that have been foregone, or in the case of revenue, the goodies which we could actually buy for the amount of money that we've collected in any period. Uh, of course, on the slide, I've also shown uh, nominal expenditure uh, of the hospital in the period so that you can see how costs uh, funding that hospital have related to costs in education and science. Uh, for example, we could see a huge increase in the funding of education 
as expressed in the number of hospitals, as I've done here, simply if expenditure went way down for those hospitals in 2010. So just to show you, I'm not trying to trick you with uh, some kind of statistical artifice. Uh, I've shown you the data in terms of expenditure on this particular hospital. Now, we were talking about uh, various ways of identifying interesting policy questions. And if you remember from the last slide, we were talking a lot about uh, current expenditure and capital expenditure. So, of course, when I opened the Argentine budget, I was looking, hmm, well, maybe there's something interesting in capital expenditure or even current expenditure, which will provide me the opportunity to draw links with the other cases that I've looked at in the course. So you see in the slide in front of you uh, various ex expenditures uh, by the Ministry of Education, Ministry of Science, Technology, and Productive Innovation, uh, Ministry of Labor, etc. Uh, so I was looking through this and I was thinking, well, what looks interesting here? I mean, what's something in my daily life that I can really relate to? And, um, I mean, science and technology, I've never really worked in a laboratory, so that that didn't mean very much to me. And I saw expenditure on a hospital. I mean, most of us, fortunately or unfortunately, have been hospitals in our life. And it's something that's relatively easy to conceptualize. And it's something that's also considered almost an unambiguous good in that most it, it, it's relatively uncontroversial that we want to spend money on hospitals. I mean, we want to cure ill people. We've all had family members who are ill. And by choosing hospitals, I've taken out the, the possible political aspect of this question. I mean, science and technology, it's a much more politically charged question where expenditure in that area could be heavily influenced by things other than social need. So what I've done is I've looked for an interesting expenditure category, which I could relate to on a personal level, and which and whose data seemed relatively clean from uh, these other outside influences, such as high levels of politi politicization. Uh, so that's, that's basically uh, the procedure that we've been using uh, in order to identify our interesting question for this budget. So, so far, we've identified an, an interesting area to look at. Okay, hospitals, how does expenditure uh, relate in comparison to the number of hospitals we could have built at that same time period? And you remember I showed you the data for uh, public expenditure on this hospital. And as I look at that data, uh, of course, my inquisitive mind is starting to search, search for interesting questions. And one of the interesting questions to me is, well, what explains government expenditure on hospitals? Uh, government governments spend money for lots of different reasons, and uh, explaining expenditure in hospitals is just as valid and interesting a question to me as large-scale expenditure on productive science and technology, for example. So. I decided, well, let's try and figure out why expenditure uh, increased uh, for this particular hospital during this period. Well, it increased from 2007 to 2008 in nominal terms. Be very careful uh, not to confuse nominal with real terms. And then, and then expenditure remained relatively even throughout the rest of this small period. 
And so you remember that the data absolutely do not speak for themselves. Um, without theory, it's very difficult to interpret data uh, or even form useful hypotheses. And so, of course, we draw to those great men and women who came before us, who spent all their time drawing uh, arrows and circles and uh, labels in order to try and make the world around us a bit clearer to us. So I look at these, these expenditures and I think, well, what could have caused this never having visited Buenos Aires and not knowing anything about this hospital? Uh, that's what makes this question particularly interesting. Because, of course, if I worked in the hospital my whole life, I would have a very visceral uh, reaction to the answer. Um, the point here, though, is to try and train you to see a set of data and immediately have the instinct to turn to various models that you've picked up in your academic and working career. So, of course, uh, if your instincts are like mine, your first port of call is going to be to think about management theory. Okay, it's a hospital, it's managed, it requires resources. What do we know? What theories can we use that might help us assess this business's, basically public business's, need for resources? And so you open the book of business and right on page two is a picture of a, a relatively young professor, not so young now, but he was young then, uh, Michael Porter. and who gives us the canonical model of business strategy. Uh, I think it's impossible to get an MBA without being extremely familiar with the Porter's Five Forces model. So knowing this, you open your textbook, you look at the model, and you see, mm, well, okay, uh, let's think about the business as a, uh, let's think about the hospital as a competitive business. Now, what might affect this hospital's ability to draw resources from the public budget? In other words, what determines the demand for this hospital's services? What factors are responsible for the way this hospital is compensated for those services? And what factors are responsible for uh, the cost, the money it has to spend in order to deliver those services, which of course is hopefully better health. Um, remember that in general the profit of any company, agency, public or private, is the money it gets in minus the money it has to put out. Revenues minus costs. So we think about then the competitive environment of this, this one hospital and in order to understand why expenditures might have risen and remain stable, uh, one factor to look at, of course, is supplier power. Uh, how, how much power did the suppliers to this hospital have in terms of charging for uh, medicines, for hospital gurneys, for the, the various inputs that go into the production of health? And so we see that uh, expenditure increased. Uh, during one year and remained relatively stable. Well, that might have been because one of the hospital suppliers was able to uh, ask for price increases and in medicines or, or whatever particular input. But that's just to say that perhaps there's something in this quadrant of the model that affected our overall expenditure on this particular expenditure category.
another possibility is to look at buyer power. Well, perhaps expenditures went up for this hospital because uh, patients demanded more services. I mean, we could easily think of a scenario where uh, the, the government has to contribute a part of the uh, operating expenditure of the hospital and patient share uh, part of those expenditures. Again, knowing nothing about this hospital, these are hypotheses. These are speculations based on a theory. And you see, hopefully, they're trying to, to channel our mind to thinking about the very concrete reasons why these expenditures look the way they do in this time period. So let's suppose then that buyer, that demand had increased for the hospital services, uh, people were able to pay uh, more for these services, uh, requiring the government to put in more resources, again assuming the government has some kind of an entitlement scheme in place or that patients have the right to receive treatment from this hospital if they provide their share uh, of the payments. Etc. Uh, that's entirely another possible explanation for why the pattern of expenditure looks like it does during this time period. Uh, a, a third theory, which we'll talk about uh, much more b on the bottom part of the slide, relates to the threat of new entry. Uh, we can understand increased expenditure for this hospital either as an increased threat of new entry or a decreased threat of new entry. Um, Let's take the, the, the first scenario, an increased threat of new entry. Uh, so there's, there's more private hospitals uh, operating, and it's, the, it's management strategy for this hospital to increase expenditure, uh, maybe to show that they provide services better, different, uh, make investments in equipment or staff in order to, um, in order to compete in this new possible market. Uh, that's one hypothesis why increased rivalry or competition in this market would lead to increased expenditure. On the other hand, it's entirely possible to hypothesize the opposite scenario, is that a decreased competitiveness, maybe some hospitals went bankrupt or uh, staff became more incompetent at one of the rival hospitals. Uh, because this is a public hospital then, more resources had to be put into this hospital in order to provide the, the catchment area, uh, those people living around this hospital, in order to provide them with the same level of amenity. So in fact, increasing expenditure is not a sign that this hospital is becoming more competitive, that it's, it's getting ready for rivalry. It's a sign of just the opposite trend, that the, the, the government's having to pick up the slack uh, because the, the competitive situation overall is deteriorating. Now, how can we know which situation uh, affects this particular hospital in the abstract? And the answer is we cannot, full stop. Uh, this is the time when we stop speculating and we go much more into looking for data, uh, making field visits, etc., topics which we will discuss in the upcoming weeks. Now, that's one model, that's one theory for trying to understand the trends of, of these very simple data that I've selected for us here. Uh, there are other theories, though, and, and each theory is equally valid. Um, I know that in the class we have a fair number of people who have studied political science and therefore I've tried to take a theory from political science, elite theory. 
Okay, and so what this theory might say, uh, of course with a bit of a stretch, is that you have a power elite and you have the, the, the rest of the population. Okay, and the power elites, they're going to manage policy in their own interest. And, and this theory is another poss possible way of understanding expenditure on this public hospital. Uh, in order to give this theory a bit of life, I've downloaded uh, the, the, the budget from a private hospital, the Hospital Britannico, in order to try and compare what expenditure was doing in this private hospital with expenditure in the, the public hospital that we've selected for our case study. So in the Hospital Britannico, we see that uh, expenditures are increasing uh, roughly in the same period. And so far, we have two sets of data, and we don't know what to do with them without theory. Uh, so you're a political scientist, and, and you don't believe any of this economics rubbish, and you say, well, elite theory is the lens that we have to use in order to understand these data. And so you say, well, uh, the way we understand these data are that we, the, the power elite have decided to resource the public hospital more so that they would have the legitimacy to go to this private hospital. Okay, we assume that the private hospital has a higher level of service because they compete. I mean, they're a British hospital. Uh, everything British is nice. I'm just kidding, but you get the idea. Uh, that there's a private hospital which serves uh, the more affluent of the society. And then you have this public hospital which serves everyone else. Uh, the elite naturally are worried about uh, their reputation, their, their political appearance, and therefore they can't be seen actively consuming an elite public resource without at least giving more resources to, to the voters, to the people who made them elite, supposedly. So one way of understanding then this uh, jump in uh, the provision of funding for the public hospital is that the elites have decided to give more money to the public hospital so that they can continue enjoying the privileges uh, that their money gives them in the private sector. Okay, uh, I know that's, that's, that's a bit of a stretch, particularly as I'm trying to, to hypothesize in a field that's not my primary field. Um, but what I want you to take away from this discussion isn't my brilliant musings about elite theory. Instead, I want you to take away the, the fact that we can't understand uh, anything from these budgets. We can't understand data without resort to some theory. And so in our roughly 15 weeks together, I want you to practice taking these, these seemingly very, very abstract theories that you've been studying for uh, your undergraduate and graduate life and try and apply them. Because uh, scholars spend a great amount of time theorizing for a specific reason. And that reason is to give you the tools you need in order to understand the world around you. Uh, so your first your first reaction anytime you see data from a budget or anything else is to shoot those data through the prism of the various theories that you've learned during your education. Uh, and you might be asking yourself and you might be asking me at this point, well, which, which theory is the right one? Uh, I mean, is it Porter or is it elite theory? And the answer is that there is no, no answer. Okay, what do I mean by that? I mean that throughout the course I've been saying that, that judgment is something that cannot be uh, 
said directly. Okay, judgment is a skill. It's a refined skill. It, uh, the exercise of judgment requires lots of practice. And so as you're looking at data and trying to evaluate whether Porter's Five Forces or Elite Theory is the more appropriate model, part of that is going to depend on your own judgment that you've been honing through doing cases each week. Um, you, you might be working in a society where Elite Theory seems extremely credible to you. Uh, just everything you see around you, uh, and I've been in countries like this, I won't name them, I'm not telling that uh, Argentina is one of them as I've never been, but there are absolutely societies where elite theory would hold much more sway in my hy hypothesizing about public expenditure than the, the more supposed apolitical theories such as uh, managerial strategy as represented by Porter's Five Forces. Now, uh, I should, t I should address one other issue which is probably burning in your mind at this point as well. Uh, you're, you're probably sitting there listening thinking, well, the, when you try and use these theories of politics, elite theory, uh, things like this, I, I, you're, you're politicizing this exercise. I mean, what we have to be impartial bureaucrats. We have to let the data speak for themselves and we have to use models from science so that we can make dispassionate apolitical judgments about the data that we see from our budgets. And um, I, I think the experience from the, the early 80s on has shown us that all, all models are political. I mean, even, even neoclassical economics, uh, balancing resources at the margin, things which neoclassical economists tell you are apolitical are in fact extremely political. And this is the root of many of the critiques of uh, World Bank IMF advice giving in the, the late 80s and 90s, is that you had sets of supposed technocrats going out into the field saying, well, it's time that we apply models that are technocratic, apolitical, uh, dispassionate. Okay? And in the literature throughout the 90s, you see this very large critique of this approach to giving policy advice, uh, depoliticization, uh, it's called. And the um, Ferguson is a name that you might want to look up in this field. And the, the whole idea is that the, the attempt to depoliticize policy advice was in fact itself a political tactic in order to impose a certain set of values which uh, some institutions or countries found to their advantage. Now, am I trying to sell you this, this view of policymaking? Absolutely not. Am I trying to make you aware of this view of policymaking? Absolutely. Um, the, the, the skilled policymaker will hold in his or her mind all of the views, all of the perspectives before taking any particular uh, decision or making any judgment. And so it's very important to realize that if you try to act uh, as quote-unquote technocratic as possible, if you say, well, I'm going to use uh, any computational tools in Excel because that's technocratic and that's not taking a political opinion. In fact, you're deluding yourself. Uh, sorry to use these strong words. But the mere action of deciding particular policy objectives based on internal rate of return, net present value, things of this nature in itself 
is a political decision that you're taking, which might or not, might not be shared by the democracy that you're supposedly representing. So that's just to go back and say models are very important. Please don't be afraid to, to use and play with, with various models because at least you're making explicit many of the assumptions that you might be leaving hitherto uh, tacit. Okay, I'm sorry to continue to waylay you with uh, political philosophy, but it, it's really that important as we try and use models in this course in order to interpret the data that we see around us, uh, particularly because I give you uh, numerous models in the course, and many of these models are, are contradictory. And so you, the, the initial impression is to say, well, what's going on? I mean, uh, this supposed smart guy has stood up and he's told us this thing. And then the very next uh, class session, he stood up, told us the completely opposite thing with an opposite model, and I don't know what to make of it. And that's exactly how the real world is. The only difference is hopefully you'll have the tools by the end of the course in order to say, well, the, the, the first uh, conclusion relies on these assumptions and the second conclusion relies on another set of assumptions. And when we talk about those underlying assumptions, that's really when our discussion begins. So let's take another example. Uh, let's look at uh, expenditure in Argentina on various types of, um, of public goods. Uh, education, uh, we're looking here at uh, health, science, etc., uh, labor. Okay, And we see e uh, expenditure on labor, for example, labor policies, labor programs. And we're, we're inclined, if we follow the neoclassical view of the world, to say, well, in Argentina, labor markets must be extremely distorted. Okay, uh, workers cannot very easily go to factories and share the value of their labor. Uh, managers cannot share the, the value of their organizing activity. Uh, there's lots of problems in the coordination between these two sides of the market, and therefore, government has the Argentine government has to step in rather vigorously. Uh, roughly 40% of what I think here is expenditure. Uh, you'll see that I haven't labeled the axis and all the problems that's now creating for me. Okay, uh, So we have large amount of expenditure on labor, and we know that there is a role for government under neoclassical theory when certain conditions are present in our labor market. Okay, uh, You see the list in front of you. I don't want to repeat them all, but let's take the example of one or two. Uh, let's think about imperfect information. Okay, uh, workers, they don't know where the job opportunities are. Uh, there's lots of employers in Mendoza who are looking for workers who are all hanging out in Buenos Aires. And so one possible uh, remedy, government remedy, then, is to provide information to these, to these two market segments, okay? uh, thus tackling imperfect information, which is inherent in this market. And uh, incomplete markets, this is another uh, example, which I won't go into. This is actually the same example I give touches on transaction costs. It could be that workers in Mendoza find it extremely uh, expensive to go and, and ask their friends next time they're in Buenos Aires to look around for them, bring back uh, the wanted, uh, the jobs, uh, the, the job section of the newspaper, etc. 
Okay, uh, so you're hearing this now, and you're thinking, well, that's that's pretty obvious. I I can't understand why anyone would win a, a Nobel Prize for for an idea so simple. And the answer is, well, okay, that's fine, but that's that's one particular view of government spending, of our large amount of spending on labor programs. Uh, let's let's use a different theoretical model. Let's assume that you're a political scientist, and again, you don't believe anything about this uh, economic stuff. And so you say, well, I want to look at various proportions of the population and the extent to which their vote weighs in on overall government policy. Okay, so you see the the graph below. Uh, the first graph, which shows uh, Argentine labor employed in various sectors, okay, uh, in terms of millions of hours worked. Of course, we want to look at hours rather than individuals, could it, because it could be that some individuals are only employed part-time, etc. Uh, you'll remember we talked about trying to find uh, quantities that could be easily compared and so this is an example of another quantity that's easily compared by looking at hours worked instead of people work, working. So we look at uh, the weight of uh, Argentine labor in various sectors, in manufacturing, in social services, uh, in, and in agriculture. And you, see, you say, well, uh, we would expect then uh, for labor programs, uh, programs which promote the interests of labor, that that would be concentrated in manufacturing because that's where most of the workers are, that's where most of the, the, the votes are, uh, etc. And you would expect to see less spending on social services, not because there are distortions in the markets for social services, which is the picture portrayed in the graph above, but because there are fewer people working in that sector. And so politicians have less incentive to push resources into social services because there are fewer votes in that particular sector. Now, again, this is a, another theory trying to explain uh, the, the first graph above. Why is there more expenditure in some programs, labor programs, debt reduction, uh, education, rather than other programs such as social development and health? Uh, again, we we've been able to quantify uh, these two theories. We've been able to put numbers to our political theory of Argentine expenditure, but nevertheless you see how these two different interpretations of the data stem from very different theories about how the world work. So we've had a bit of a think about uh, expenditure, Argentine expenditure. Uh, we've looked at the possible reasons why uh, the Argentine government might allocate resources into one sector, uh, labor promotion as opposed to another sector, uh, social security. And now we shift a little bit and think uh, about the revenue side. Uh, it's, it's like a uh, yin and yang, or front side of the coin and back side of the coin. Anytime you think about expenditure, you tend to want to think about revenue. Now, how do we understand Argentine revenue in context? And as we've been discussing for the last 30 minutes or so, we need to understand it using theory. And so what does theory tell us about revenue collection, taxation in general? You remember from class we were talking about the, 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 the benefits and the harms of taxation. Uh, I told you that 
all taxation is bad except when it is good. And then as usual, I did my Zen, Zen posture and, and looked kind of bewildered. What do I mean by that? I mean that taxation creates welfare loss through distortions, okay, they distort markets, as we saw in class. However, we accept those market distortions because they provide for the social goods and services we need that we, we consume, first off, and second of all, it's exactly those public services that make our market transactions more efficient. Okay, let's think about uh, free market uh, exchange in, in a dystopia where there's no roads, there's no telephone, there's no electricity. Of course, the, the free market outcome would be much less than a managed market outcome. Uh, in the dystopic uh, scenario, okay, uh, a Robinson Crusoe meets Mad Max, you have this situation where there's no market distortion, there's no taxation, but there's also no social benefit being generated. And so what we need isn't no regulation or all regulation, we need right regulation. We need social welfare loss and distortion, but we need that in order to fund these public goods and services, which hopefully increase uh, the, the public wheel. So you see in front of you then a model, a theory about how taxes distort our markets. Um, you saw these Harberger triangles and I was talking a bit in class about distortions in terms of absolute and relative levels, okay? That taxes can distort all the, the, the whole part of a market or all of the economy and they tilt, they can also affect various parts or aspects of the economy. And so I wanted to talk a little bit more about these market distortions in order to give you a clear, clearer idea of exactly what we're talking about. So imagine that, w that in Argent Argentina uh, we have a tax rate, okay, 35% uh, in this case. So taxes are distorting up a, uh, a bit the Argentine economy, okay. Uh, so that's, you can think of that as the level of distortion. Uh, overall, we've got an economy which is distorted by taxation. Okay, f fair enough. Uh, but then we need to think, well, how, how more specifically do these taxes distort this economy? And so what I've done is I've drawn a very simple uh, input-output matrix, if you will, in order to show how uh, taxes might distort an economy, and more importantly, why I said it was so important to have non-distortionary taxation. You remember uh, we were talking in class that I was telling you didn't want different tax rates in your economy because that would start uh, distorting a the, the allocation of resources from some sectors into other sectors. Uh, you might remember in class I said that if we have a high tax on um, food as opposed to iPods, people are going to start under-consuming food and over-consuming iPods. That's an example of a, of a distortion created by a tax policy uh, which brings the, the market equilibrium, the market results away from what people would normally choose from this for themselves and thus in theory the best possible outcome.
Because remember, neoclassical economists, we're very Voltairian in our views that everyone, by pursuing their individual interests, should, in theory, maximize the, the national wheel. So back to our funny image here of the capitalist, and the capitalist is uh, thinking as he produces things, um, where should he uh, invest his resources? Should he uh, engage more labor, or should he buy more machines? Okay, And we know that for some types of production, in certain circumstances, um, factory managers and directors, they do have that they can trade off labor and machines. They can either hire more people or they can buy a machine to, uh, a robot to put uh, juice in cans or whatever it is the company produces. Okay, And we think about, the, well, what's the effect of taxation on this decision? And naturally, we would want uh, taxes, we would want taxes not to distort the capitalist decision to invest in people as opposed to machines. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that labor will have a certain productivity in stuffing juice into cans, and machines will have a certain productivity stuffing juice into cans. And what we want as a society, in theory, is that we want uh, whichever one of these factors of production, which are more productive, we want them doing most of the work, okay, assuming that they're cheaper. More productive, in theory, means cheaper, okay? Uh, and so we want production reflecting, to some degree, the marginal productivity of these inputs, capital and labor, okay? Now, when we impose a tax on these factor inputs, that starts to distort the capitalist's decision about using these inputs. Uh, if suddenly we tax capital much lower than we, ca we tax labor, then we're going to start to mechanize our society. Okay? Uh, that's on the capitalist side, but also for the, the factors of production, taxation has an effect as well. If labor is taxed more heavily, uh, than machines, you start to see uh, disincentives to work, okay? And that will, in turn, affect uh, uh, the quantity of this particular factor which is supplied. Uh, similarly with capital, uh, for reasons which are slightly more complex that I won't go into them here. But what I do very much want to highlight is that the relative tax rate between these two factors of production if they are distortionary, they will start to skew the the way capitalists start to produce the things that we eat every day. Okay, so you want a tax system which does not distort economic decisions, oh, either to use labor or capital, unless you very deliberately want to distort that decision. Uh, again, it's another one of my Zen answers. You don't want to distort production unless you want to distort production. Okay. But if you want to distort production, for example, giving a lower um, rate on uh, tax rate on capital, then you want to do that deliberately. Okay. Uh, and this is an area of public economics which I don't want to get into because if we get into it, we'll really get into it. Uh, just take away the intuitions that I've described so far. Uh, but we continue now with our analysis of taxation and possible distortion, and we think about the consumption decision. 
I mean, if if we said that taxation could affect uh, the producer's decision to use people or machines, taxation could also affect uh, us as consumers, our decision to consume computers or food. Uh, do we consume uh, another iPod or do we eat more? And part of that, of course, is going to be based on our preferences, which are reflected by in-market prices. Uh, market prices also reflect the productivity of the people making that stuff. Okay, but part of our our consumption decision is going to be based on the taxes on, on those things, because taxes affect the price, our, our the the final price that we pay from our wallet. And so we want a, a, a taxation policy again that doesn't distort consumption, unless we want it to distort consumption. Uh, and in many countries, you see uh, lower rates of tax on food uh, than on um, uh, consumer durables, uh, consumables like iPods, things of that nature. And the reason is uh, because we worry about social objectives. Uh, uh, part of this also clearly reflects politics, uh, which I don't want to discuss here. But all I do want to highlight is that different rates of tax on different goods will distort consumption decisions. And that's what I mean when I'm talking about this tilt in the economy, as opposed to the, the overall level of distortion. Now, in order, of course, to, to, to make uh, the arguments a bit clearer, more illustrative, uh, I've put up an Excel bar chart, which you see in front of you, because uh, showing bar charts looks more professional than showing pictures of capitalists and happy labors and hard hats. And so the, the bar chart basically tries to put, to quantify uh, some of these effects given uh, very simplistic assumptions that I've put in my little Excel model in order to show uh, this effect of the relative level of distortion as opposed to the, as opposed to the skew or tilting of production and, and uh, consumption decisions in our economy. So you see uh, a level of income in our little society, which is normalized at 100. Uh, you see the value of the inputs that have been used in order to make that income. Uh, you see that as the, the, the red part of this bar chart. You see some value, uh, a value added from capital. And I've tried to show the uh, the the distortion or deadweight loss from the taxation of these factor inputs as black. Okay, I've made certain assumptions about elasticities which I won't go into, but I want to highlight. You can see from this middle bar that there are uh, deadweight losses, and those deadweight losses accrue, if you will, to the use of these various factors. Similarly, we can think about uh, consumption decisions, okay, everything we make in a society, in theory we eat in a society, okay, or we send abroad and they eat it, uh, but let's think about the value of consumption. We have uh, food consumed, we have com computers consumed in this simple society, and what I've tried to do with this uh, checkered a part, this checkered box in this bar chart, is show the marginal or, or change in the consumption of food due to the, the lower tax rate. 
Okay, so you see that there's a certain demand for food uh, under uh, one tax rate. Uh, the demand for food is higher uh, as taxes go lower, and that affects, in our simple economy, the uh, decision to consume computers as opposed to food. So in this, in this bar chart graph overall, you can see the distortion or change in consumer preferences on the consumption side, and you can see the dead weight loss on the production side. So you're, you're sitting there thinking, wow, that was kind of complicated. That's, that's the second time in this series of online lectures that uh, I've presented something very, very complicated uh, as a background to showing something relatively simple. Uh, so we've shown uh, the effects of taxation on the economy, and hopefully we can use those intuitions now in order to try and tell a story about taxation in Argentina. Uh, the two figures that you see in front of you are the uh, revenues collected from various taxes in Argentina in 2010. Uh, on the left side, just the absolute levels, the, the absolute revenue coming into the government coffers. And on the right side, you see the changes in revenue collection for each of those revenue categories. Uh, remember, we said that uh, that the inframarginal uh, rates of collection are interesting, but the marginal rates of collection are even more interesting to us. So we use our eyeballs a bit. Well, we don't use our eyeballs because in, uh, I've converted the numbers from the budget into bar charts so that they're easy to read, uh, and that's why I keep pushing you to work on your Excel skills. And we see a couple of interesting trends in these data, uh, just with a very cursory inspection. Uh, we see that uh, VAT and income taxes, of course, represent the majority of the revenue collected in Argentina in 2010. And we see that uh, the taxes, that, like electricity taxes, they represent a relatively small share of revenue uh, collected by the Argentine authorities in this time. Uh, looking at the right graph, though, we see the, 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 the marginal story tells us something rather different than the absolute story. We see relatively large increases in electricity taxes in this time period, and relative stability in income and, and uh, value-added taxes. Of course, all taxes are going up in the time period except for one uh, uh, other petrol excise taxes, which I don't know what those are. Uh, we won't discuss that for now, probably because I don't know what they are. Uh, let's look at the boxes that I've indicated on the graph instead. Uh, we have relatively quick-growing electricity taxes, uh, less faster-growing income taxes and VAT, and of course this attracts our attention a little bit. Okay, uh, On an absolute scale, electricity taxes are small, but they're growing quickly. Uh, VAT and income taxes are pretty big, but they're growing not as fast. I, I wonder what's happening there. What's, what's, what could be a possible cause of, of this uh, trend in the data? And hopefully all this rigmarole that you saw on the last slide can help us understand this a little bit. Uh, well, we were thinking about our capitalists, and we were thinking about our happy iPod consumers, and we know that taxes distort an economy. And so one 
hypothesis or one speculation that we might make is that the authorities decided to start branching out or diversifying their revenue sources in order to try and minimize the collective impact, the collective distortion of taxes in any particular area of the economy. Okay, So that's one possible hypothesis is that the Argentine authorities wanted to start taxing electricity much more because they were quote-unquote tired of distorting uh, consumers' incomes and uh, their decisions at the till through value-added taxes. Okay, That's one hypothesis from data which could be suggested by these data. Remember that I said that your natural curiosity in some ways is going to guide you through the, the case analysis process. Uh, I saw two categories which looked interesting to me. Electricity taxes, which at, at least I think I know something about, and these other petrol excise taxes, which I'm pretty sure I know nothing about. But I did see a third category that I think I know something about, only because in my education, I had to sit through these trade uh, economics classes, and I've often heard these famous trade economists come to the university and give these uh, these uh, spectacular lectures about free trade, etc. And the, the 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 tax that caught my attention then was export taxes, Argentine export taxes, uh, which I didn't circle on the last graph, but I do want to spend a couple of minutes. Uh, thinking about on this slide. So I see that these export taxes rank number three in absolute levels. Um, I don't know too much about them. They, I'm almost positive that export taxes represent a very nasty form of uh, distortion in any market economy. Uh, but that's not what really concerns me here. What concerns me here is more the very simple question, well, why did these taxes increase? I mean, before I start imposing all this heavy theory on the question, I want to just step back and try and figure out, well, wh what caused export taxes to increase? And so having a curious mind, I, I, I know that there's only two reasons why, well, three reasons why uh, taxation could increase. Either uh, trade and exports went up, uh, either the, the price of exported goods went up, or taxes in that particular category went up. Okay, uh, so as far as I I know and I'm concerned, there's only three categories. Uh, the graph on the right it shows imports. It could have just as easily shown exports, uh, but I was kind of lazy and I wanted to look at imports here, and uh, particularly because import taxes are ranked fifth in terms of their absolute contribution to the Argentine economy. I uh, feel very free to do this with export taxes. I think that's partly why I didn't put the, the graph of export taxes here, is because I didn't want to deprive you of the pleasure of doing it for yourself. So we see uh, uh, imports uh, into Argentina, expressed in US dollars, of course. And we look at the share of agricultural value added in Argentina in that time period. And we're trying to figure out, well, what caused this increase in import taxation? Was it P, was it Q, or was it T? In other words, did import prices increase, did quantity increase, or did the tax rate applied to these imports increase? 
So I'm looking at the trends in the data, uh, which take literally 45 seconds to download from uh, World Development Sources, and you see that screenshot in the lower right-hand corner. And I see that imports took a rather nasty spill uh, in dollar terms from 2008 to 2009, probably continuing into 2010. The data were not available at that time. Okay, so I have limited data uh, on the export side. I have data on import taxes, and I have to speculate about why these import taxes increased. Now, given the data I see in front of me about the level of imports, I'm assuming that the trend didn't suddenly reverse itself very sharply in 2010. Okay, it might have, and that's absolutely fine. Instead, I want to make a assumption, a hypothesis, given the data available, and my assumption is that imports, import values decreased in this time period. Okay, uh, so that suggests, and uh, agricultural value added uh, decreased in in this time period as well. So I am assuming that quantity uh, most likely decreased. Uh, prices quite probably increased given what that red line is doing and so something probably happened on the actual import tax side itself okay now that's my first working hypothesis of course I wouldn't go out and publicize this hypothesis uh, as you hear from the uh, hesitations in my voice I'm already rather skeptical about this conclusion and hopefully you are too but given only the data that are shown on this graph, that to me is the most logical conclusion that I can draw from the data available. And that is my starting hypothesis from which I would start to dig more deeply into this budget in order to try and understand uh, why import taxes increased uh, during, during the 2010 fiscal year in Argentina. So, we've been discussing uh, import taxation a little bit, and I want to draw our attention back into electricity taxes because I, I promise that that would be one of the main things that we would be looking at in this budget, okay? This uh, distortion, uh, the distortionary effect of tax and its possible effect on uh, tax policy to start diversifying the, the revenue base into electricity taxes and away from income taxes and value-added taxes. Uh, but please don't worry, we'll get right back to the trade taxes after this slide. So, we're trying to think, well, why did electricity taxes uh, increase in Argentina in 2010? Uh, you remember that we were talking about Harburger Triangles, that uh, taxation cause, causes distortion and big taxation causes big distortion, uh, therefore smaller taxation causes smaller distortion. Uh, there's several rather cool uh, theories, findings, mathematical findings in public economics that show the exact economic harm uh, as a geometric function of the taxes uh, applied in any particular market. Uh, I, I won't go into it now other than to note that bigger triangles bad, smaller triangles less bad. Okay, So we can think about the attempt to uh, tax 
different sectors of the economy as an attempt to spread out this distorting effect of taxation in an attempt to foster economic growth, etc. Okay, so that that's one speculation, that's one theory applied to these data. Uh, but there are there is another theory about the t taxation of electricity, <clears throat> and we could assume that Ar the Argentine officials are a bit more nefarious in their in their goals than simply trying to altruistically spread the harm as thinly as possible. Okay. Instead, we could think about one of the most fundamental theories of public taxation, and that is that you maximize the revenue collected from a tax when you tax uh, inelastic goods. Okay, uh, goods that are relatively inelastic, goods where the demand for those goods is relatively inelastic uh, for changes in the price of those goods. Okay, uh, this the the way I've just reformulated it. It's a bit more um, it, it's a bit more technical for those of you who want to think about the economics behind this problem. But you can think about it another way. Think about an inelastic good as something you you just gotta have. Uh, electricity, water, uh, Abba's. Uh, gold CD collection. Okay, the, these are sorry. Uh, these are goods where you're going to demand the good uh, almost at the same quantity for relatively large changes in the market price. And we would think, well, electricity is probably an inelastic good. Uh, even if the price doubles for electricity tomorrow, I wouldn't consume so much less than I am now. I flick the light switch when I need it. Uh, if I'm living in one of these really harsh countries in Europe where they charge an absolute fortune for electricity, then I, I do really make it a point to wear more pullovers and, and work by candlelight, uh, as I've seen some of my neighbors do. But... Uh, but at present, in the U.S., electricity is not very heavily taxed. We do know it's relatively inelastic, and it is a, a perfect opportunity for a public official who wants to raise more uh, tax revenue. Okay, that's a ca an area of expenditure where you can um, where you can collect a large amount of taxes. Okay, tax inelastic goods in order to maximize tax revenue. Uh, that's, that's the moral of this slide. So in the last slide we were talking about uh, trade distortions and we were talking about harms to the economy. And I promised to return to trade taxes and I've done so in this slide. And what I want to try and do is show you that, well, in fact it's possible that the issues involved in both of these types of taxation, these types of revenue collection, in fact aren't as dissimilar as they seem at first glance. Okay, We know that trade taxes bring in uh, revenue, of course, and we probably know that there's an optimal trade tax as well, and we know that in many cases that optimal trade tax equals zero. Okay. Um, you see in front of you links to a couple of discussions of trade economics. I know that trade economics is very popular and uh, the link on the bottom is a more informal discussion of the economic issues involved. The 
uh, slides, the YouTube presentation above is a more formal rendition of the economics of uh, distortionary taxation. Okay. And what I think you'll see from the video is that the, the analysis we use when we consider distortion in international trade, it's the same as we consider the distortion for internal or domestic trade. Uh, in the slides, you'll see T refer to the tariff. Uh, little t is, is just a tax. I mean, tariffs are, are a tax. And so the, the intuitions that we were building about the distortionary effect of taxation in domestic markets applies just as equally to international markets. So you can, you can bring over all those intuitions and, tr and play with them, try and apply them in the context of international trade. Um, I use this slide also to try and encourage you to develop another skill that we've been talking about throughout the course. Uh, as you know, my background is in economics, and to some extent I feel rather comfortable with these, we call them two spaces. Uh, supply and demand, you see two lines intersecting. Uh, this is how economists tend to, to, th to speak to each other, but ironically it's not the way we think to ourselves. Um, and I found this approach to economics extremely uh, problematic when I was a student myself, is that I learned how to manipulate these machines, these graphs, but I came away from my education not really understanding what was going on, what, what was the explanation behind all these graphs, uh, so that you don't make the same mistake that students of my generation made, or maybe it was just me, it's entirely possible that, it, that only I wasn't as smart as my classmates. Um, I want you to think about uh, translating uh, some of the explanations and some of this high theory that you're presented in terms of the stickman that I've been using throughout the course. I mean, usually you see when I'm uh, presenting economic arguments during lecture, I'm trying to put them in terms of stickmen. Okay, well, we have the ISLM model. Let's think about a saver and let's think about a uh, investor. Let's think about the government and um, the money as it's pushed through the economy. I'm always drawing these capitalists with top hats. And I do that for two reasons. First of all is because uh, by seeing uh, actually how these economic mechanisms work, you're going to get a better feel for it. Okay. And part of the reason is, is simply um, our, our animal nature. I mean, we, we tend to think in terms of pictures. Uh, we tend to think in terms of experiences, uh, funny pictures, uh, limericks, uh, things of this nature. And so if you can present to yourself these economic intuitions, which in a way which is amusing and fun and interesting to you, then you're not going to groan when you go back to your notes four years later. Instead, you're going to see your notes maybe from this class, and you're going to see all of the arrows and diagrams and uh, capitalists wearing top hats and laborers wearing hard hats, and you're going to be more motivated to go over those notes and think about these issues again as you tackle them during the course of your daily work. So I would hope very much that one of the skills you take away from this course, uh, besides all of this theory stuff and critiquing stuff, is also the ability to translate these arguments into interesting types of notes that you'll feel comfortable playing with in your professional career years later.
So we've looked at uh, revenue collection uh, in as portrayed in the Argentine budget, uh, multi-year budget 2010. It's a review of the, the budget, actually. Uh, we've looked at uh, expenditure, and now I want to move on a bit. Uh, I want to move on to another topic that is that uh, caught my eye in the budget. It's a topic that, that you've hopefully been reading around in the various weeks in the assigned readings. And that topic is uh, performance-based budgets, budgeting. Okay? Uh, it, the Argentine budget caught my attention also because there is a section uh, attempting to look at uh, this pilot project of tying uh, expenditure to results, looking at the performance of uh, expenditure in particular categories, what, what's basically performance-based budgeting. And so I wanted to go through one of these cases with you and um, think, think together about some of the issues involved as you try and tie the readings into the actual casework that you're doing. In front of you, you see uh, indicators for a project. Uh, uh, indicators of the results of a uh, labor promotion project. And what these numbers are is they are graduation rates, the percentage of, um, of people participating in this uh, basically job, job facilitation program, uh, giving uh, students skills they need to go out and get jobs. Uh, you see that they give uh, graduation rates and percentages for the different Argentine regions from 2005 to 2010. And so you, so at first glance, this looks like a performance-based measure. Uh, they, the Argentine authorities put in a certain amount of resources into this PIIE program, and now they're measuring the results that they got. Uh, if you actually look at this, you'll see they don't give a breakdown of, uh, of expenditure by region on this program. Instead, they, they only give overall expenditure by region uh, in terms of education. And therefore, well, you'll see on the next slide, I've had to manipulate the data a bit. Uh, but let's look only at these data for now. Uh, you have numbers to the left, you have uh, a chart to the right, okay? And the again, this is simply an admonition to use Excel because the chart on the right, in my opinion, looks just much more interesting uh, than the numbers on the left. You'll notice that the data from the different regions are comparable. Uh, throughout the course, we've had this concern about comparability. And the reason why they're comparable is because the number of students graduating from this program have been divided by the total number of students participating in the program. So we're always looking for some denominator, some common, common denominator in our data that allows us to compare the data. And remember I said in lecture that that's the, the statistics we always rely upon in order to make these types of comparisons are either ratios or rates of change. Uh, sometimes in, in my own working life, I've had to fudge very disparate data uh, into being comparable by looking at rates of change in order to try and, and form some hypotheses, which then I would go out and explore more fully. 
I mean, of, of course, I wouldn't try and sell anyone snake oil by uh, showing uh, rates of change in very uh, disparate budget categories, but rates of change are directly comparable, and they are very useful for thinking about some issues as you tackle the cases in this course. So we've discussed the more mundane issue of excelling around and trying to put things in directly comparable terms. Now let's think a little bit about these data and let's think about the underlying model related to the performance-based budget that uh, Argent Argentina was using in order to assess this program. Okay, uh, They give us a set of outputs uh, which, is ba which are basically graduation rates as opposed to the no total number of people participating in the program. Well th there's two red flags that should be going up in your mind uh, at this point. The, the first red flag is that, well, we're discussing outputs, not outcomes. Uh, we agreed in all of the readings that we're more interested in outcomes. What did we actually achieve for our spending rather than what, what physical things did we actually purchase? Okay? I mean, when I hire a plumber, I'm not paying for his wrench. I'm not paying for his time. I'm paying for a fixed sink. So in the same way for public expenditure, we want to think about the number of fixed sinks. We don't want to try and measure the number of plumber visits. Uh, so in the, the, the model you see in front of you, uh, we're really concerned about whether we're measuring outputs, uh, teaching, as opposed to outcomes, which is learning. Okay, That's one conceptual problem related to this uh, report found in this Argentine budget. Now there's there's a couple of other conceptual problems as well. Uh, I mentioned very briefly that, that they don't tell how much money went into each program at the regional level, quite possibly because of the political or administrative uh, uh, effects. I mean, imagine if they did report the amount of money that was spent on this program in each region in each year, and you have different rates of graduation, that makes public uh, officials directly accountable which is not something that we want, which is not something that they want, and it's not something that we want either. You're probably sitting there thinking, well, what do you mean we don't want that? Isn't that the whole point of this course? Every reading is telling us we want accountability and we want transparency. We want performance-based budgets. But when you stop and think about it for a minute, that's actually not what we want. Um, we don't want a measurement system which ties uh, a public official's job, uh, well, basically his livelihood to year-on-year year on year performance. I mean, we know that graduation rates are affected by numerous things in in the the local community. Um, there's all kinds of factors that could influence graduation rates in any particular region in any particular year. But the second that the press has the number of pesos spent per region and the graduation rates per region, uh, those type of data make for very powerful graphs in the national newspapers about which public administrators need to go. And it's very hard to resist sometimes those public pressures that are drawn on very summary data. And so in trying to evaluate their decision not to report uh, expenditure per region on this program, I actually think they made the right decision. 
I think that uh, sacrificing transparency and accountability in order to provide a bit of stability for this program, in order to provide for learning, in order to account for these shocks to the, the program, these inter-regional shocks, I, I think it's, it's quite valid and appropriate. Okay, so that's that's a slight musing, if you will, on another aspect of performance-based budgeting, which you'll almost certainly see in your midterms and exams. Uh, you'll certainly see a question: uh, performance-based budgeting is good. Discuss, uh, and you'll need to think rather deeply about some of the reasons why it's bad, because one-sided arguments are always bad. Okay. Um, Let's return to the model that you see in front of you. Uh, we know that when we're thinking about performance-based budgets, it, it's, re it's a relatively closed system. Money goes in, uh, you buy stuff, you buy teachers, you buy um, uh, computers, you buy books, pencils, uh, and those inputs combine to create certain outputs, uh, of course, exposed to these shocks that I was talking about earlier. Okay. Now we have now one of the, the empirical challenges for us will be to try and measure the efficiency by which the money going in leads to uh, the hiring of X number of staff, X number of capital. Okay, uh, I've denoted that here by beta two. Uh, of course, it's interesting to know the extent to which the imp those inputs result in outputs, which might be graduation rates. And in this model, I've represented that by beta three. And then finally, and probably most importantly, we want to know uh, the effect that those graduation rates have on actual job attainment, on uh, productivity, things we really care about, which is uh, beta 4, which, as we discussed in the previous lectures, probably the most difficult thing to try and assess. Okay? Uh, so keep in mind, finally, as we conclude this particular slide, that what we're interested in looking at are the marginal changes in graduation. We're not interested in assessing uh, whether 93% um, graduation rate is better than a 90% graduation rate. Instead, we want to look at the marginal change. What is the effect of a 1% or 2% change in graduation rates on um, uh, job attainment on productivity, or what is the uh, marginal change of a thousand extra pesos on the percentage change in graduation rates. So again, be very careful not to confuse levels with rates of change. So I promised in the last slide that we would look at the effect of expenditure on graduation rates, and this slide is an attempt to keep that promise. Uh, I told you that the Argentine authorities did not report expenditure on a year-on-year -year basis for each particular region. So I wasn't able to assess the uh, exactly the effect of expenditure on this program in terms of graduation rates for various re regions. Uh, so what did I have to do? Well, I had to go out and try and find data in order to, to make some working hypotheses. Uh, in the budget, the program level data wasn't available, but they do report the amount of uh, expenditure by region uh, given um, in uh, the legislation. 
Okay, they say, well, look, uh, there's legislation which uh, provides a certain amount of pesos of uh, educational expenditure in this PIIE program by region. Uh, I can't be sure that all that money was spent to this program, but no data, no hypothesis. So, of course, we need some data in order to begin fumbling our way toward a conclusion. And what I've done is that I've taken expenditure by region, I've scaled it by the population, of course, because you don't want large uh, expenditure to appear in the data simply because the region's larger. Okay, so I've looked at the, um, the appropriation for resources on a per-person basis for this program on the x-axis, which, which you see in front of you. And on the y-axis, I've simply plotted the graduation rates from this, this program. Uh, I haven't put all of the regions because uh, this, this graph is for mostly for illustrative purposes and it would be kind of boring to type in the data for all the regions. So I just typed in several re regions so you could get a feel for the, the approach that I've taken here. Uh, you see one, two, three, four, five, six regions plotted and when you put a line of best fit to these regions it shows that as expenditure increased per person uh, for this general uh, educational expenditure category uh, graduation rates uh, improved. They correlated with higher graduation rates in that particular region. So what does that tell us tentatively? Well that tells us tentatively that uh, Argentine regional expenditures is effective. Uh, that are the betas from our model in the last uh, in the last model in the last slide. Okay, looking at uh, inputs and how they translate into outputs. Basically, that beta two plus beta three, that's positive. Uh, as we spend more, we get higher levels of graduation, and that is all this chart tells us. And given the rough, weak correlation in these data, we're not even 100% sure that these data tell us even that. But so far, this is our working hypothesis. And as we collect more, model, more uh, data, this is the model that, that's going to shape our thinking as we test whether this worldview is true or not. So in the last slide, we were basically talking about uh, returns on a particular government program. I mean, that's, that's why we talk about performance-based budgets, is that we want to know what kind of returns we're getting on the money that we're spending. And we want a management tool that allows us to increase the returns for the money that we're given by carefully defining what we're trying to get. In this term, in, in the terms of the project we looked at, uh, that would be a graduation, higher graduation rates. Okay, so we look at the data, we look at underperforming regions, and we say, okay, well, that's where we need to focus most of our resources. Um, we spent a fair amount of time talking about returns to government activity. Uh, however, in the real world, we're concerned about two things. We're concerned about returns, and we're also concerned about risk. I mean, it, it doesn't help anyone uh, to win a million dollars if they risk their life every day in order to do it. Uh, 
we we want to know what what are we getting for our money, but we also want to know what we're risking in order to get those returns. Um, risk and return. It's a very fundamental part of our, our life that uh, we, especially Americans, grow up thinking about every day. Uh, what to know about governments is that governments are by nature risk averse. Uh, there's numerous theories about why governments emerged at all, and many of them focus on the the need to create a stable institution that's there when everything else in the society doesn't work correctly. Okay, governments are the port of uh, last resort. They are the institution that we can count on during wars and strife, and they are also the institutions that insure us against uh, large-scale calamity. I mean, in theory, one of the reasons why we have large-scale government is that if we can't afford our retirement, or if we can't afford uh, health care on a massive scale, or if all the banks go bust, there's going to be somebody who will step in and say, we are ready to indemnify this society against these risks. Okay, you've put all these resources into building all these offices, hiring all these government officials, and now it now you're going to see some return when the going gets tough. Okay, governments by nature are risk averse. That is one of their functions in society. Okay, even though there's a big trend now for governments to be more like the private sector, when push comes to shove, governments are risk averse. All governments agency managers have to look at the risks that they take on in their departmental budgets in order to achieve the project uh, results or returns that they are getting for their senior administrators and ultimately their political masters in cabinet. Okay, uh, Governments are risk averse. Um, that's why we as governments have to insure against uh, things that are insurable. Uh, governments help us to insure against the non-insurable. And let's think now about one of the risks related to the program we were looking at, uh, this uh, uh, job skills promotion program in Argentina. Okay, We saw graduation rates as reported by the government, but we also need some measure of risk. I mean, if I'm a job seeker, an Argentine job seeker, uh, I'm I'm concerned about my prospects of of getting a good job, depending on if I attend this program in Mendoza versus uh, Buenos Aires. Those are the only two cities I know in Argentina's has probably become evident by now. Uh, I want to know what is the risk of this program succeeding for uh, a particular individual attending these programs in the various Argentine regions. And so what I've done uh, in the, the graph you see in front of you is that I've attempted to measure that risk in terms of the standard deviation of uh, graduation rates in that particular uh, region, okay, and what that tells me is that is it more risky for me to attend a program in one region versus another? In other words, am I going to be less certain uh, of graduating in one region versus another? Uh, standard deviation—it's this variability that's often the way that we think about risk, uh, not only in public finance but in private finance, uh, corporate finance as well.
Uh, and those of you that have taken corporate finance will see that this is uh, an attempt to replicate what's known as the capital asset pricing model. It's basically a model that tells us the relationship for a number of investment projects or securities. Uh, it shows the relationship between risk and return. And I've attempted to replicate this view of the world by looking at the risk of graduating as measured by standard deviation, plotted against on the y-axis the percent of graduates uh, in each region. And all this graph is trying to do is to show how much risk different regions are taking on for different levels of graduation, of, of attainment. And what we see here is that we have several regions that have very low standard deviations and many, many more regions that have relatively high standard deviations in terms of the, in terms of the uncertainty of attaining a particular graduation rate. Okay? Be very clear about what we're talking about. In this case, we're looking at the certainty of attaining a certain stability in the graduation rate. Okay, stability is good. That, that's why I've been stressing this whole risk aversion thing uh, f during this whole slide. Now, what this what this figure is trying, what this figure hopefully shows, is that some regions attain the same graduation rates with a much lower level of uncertainty. Uh, if you're a management theorist, you say that the process of attaining graduates is is under control much more in some regions than others. And when we say a process is in control, we mean that the process generating graduation shows much less fluctuation. It shows much less standard deviation. And so as a government, of course, we want to, to, to put these kinds of processes in control. We want to minimize the amount of variance between regions in order to, to have particular attainments, in this case, a graduation rate. Um, we want this for managerial reasons because volatility uh, almost always implies some kind of waste on the one hand and there's a, a legal philosophical argument as well that uh, all citizens have the, have the right to the same types of amenities so there's no reason why some citizen in Mendoza should have uh, superior possibilities simply because of differences in managerial talent compared with Buenos Aires. Okay? So philosophically speaking, we want the same level of attainment, even if it's a lower level of attainment, in order to promote the, the, the constitutional principle of equality. Okay? So risk bad, variation bad at, at the most basic. Now, you're, you're, you're probably asking yourself, well, how do we measure a risk of course standard deviation and the next question that immediately pops to your mind is well well fine how do we measure risk aversion in other words how much are we willing to spend in order to avoid certain risks certain variability the lack of control in this graduation process okay uh, what do I mean by that I mean that uh, looking at this program of uh, educating uh, potential job seekers. Okay? We know that we want each job seeker to go into class uh, being relatively certain that there's going to be a, a fixed graduation rate. 
Okay, they go to one region and they're as likely of graduating as in another region. Now, how much would government pay in order to have that kind of certainty? It, how much would government pay in order to avoid the risk of different uh, graduation rates across different regions? Okay, We think of this as risk aversion, and consequently we think of the resources that we're willing to spend to avoid risk as a measure of risk aversion. And you'll remember in lecture that I was talking about this measure of risk aversion as of the purchase of a lottery ticket. Okay, Basically, this measures how much am I willing to pay in order not to take a risky bet. Uh, you'll remember I gave this example of either getting $100 without any risk or getting the possibility of $200 with a 50% probability and uh, getting nothing also with 50% probability. Now you remember from what we were discussing in class, the expected payoff to these two uh, scenarios, to these two games, they're identical. Okay, In both cases you can expect to get $100, uh, but there are numerous people who would pay not to, to, to face the risk of getting nothing. And so as we measure risk aversion, we simply go out and we ask people, well, okay, look, I'll either give you $100 now or I'll give you this other bet. Okay, How, how much of these winnings would you forego in order to avoid taking this bet? Similarly, we can think about this in, in a public sector context. How much money would the government spend in order to avoid taking this risk, in order to avoid uh, playing in a lottery where some regions have lower graduation rates than other regions. And I'm going to leave our discussion here for two reasons, uh, one practical and one philosophical. Okay, The practical reason why I'm leaving the discussion about risk aversion here is because uh, it's slightly complicated, it's economics, and if you don't like this stuff, I don't want to uh, angst you any more than you already are. Okay. Now, the, 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 the practical reason or the, the teaching objective is that those of you who are curious are going to look up this topic much more. You're going to see reference to several paradoxes in economics. And you're going to read around a little bit. And you're, by, at the end of the day, you're going to understand this topic much better than if you listen to me explain it here. Uh, you remember in class, I gave the same sleight of hand explanation. And the reason why I keep doing this throughout the course is that, in my experience, I, the, the things I remember most vividly are those things I had to learn for myself. Or they're the things that somebody explained to me, and then later I looked them up and I, I realized that either the person was wrong or I misunderstood what they were telling me. And those things were blazed very much into my mind. And so in the same way, I want to, to give you practice hearing something, going off and seeing f it for yourself as a way of really solidifying your understanding of that particular principle, assuming you're interested in learning the principle in the first place.
So, uh, I finished the last slide talking about pedagogy, so it's only appropriate that we continue our discussion of pedagogical methods. Uh, the real skills I'm trying to teach in this course, uh, which in my experience have been much more important than those very nitty-gritty financial management things. Okay, uh, Throughout the course we've, we've been struggling to fit the readings from the syllabus into the cases and it, it's been very nebulous. You have several readings on the one hand and you have cases on the other hand. And so the question is, well, how can I use the material from the readings in order to help enlighten and elucidate my case analysis? And so again, we have uh, an example which I thought might illustrate the, the general technique. Uh, you remember one of the readings related to budgeting and budgetary institutions uh, published by the World Bank, which you see on the slide in front of you. And as you're going through the Argentina case, uh, you might have this book in front of you. You'll open the book and then you'll think, well, what from this reading might help me understand uh, the things I'm seeing in this uh, performance-based budget from Argentina or any other uh, uh, data from the, the Argentine budget. And you're flipping through the book and chapter one you see uh, that they're talking about uh, budgeting institutions and the principal agent problem. And so you, you, you step back and you think, huh, principal agent problem, what's that? And then you might uh, Google it or you might look it up in another book and you see, hmm, well, you know, a principal agent problem is when uh, agents have their own uh, objectives which might be different from their principals or their, their bosses, basically, okay? And that leads to uh, poor outcomes, to uh, different outcomes than what the principal wanted, uh, to economic inefficiency, etc. Okay, so then you, you read a little bit about the principal agent problem. Maybe you're not completely comfortable and familiar with, with this, this problem at, at this point. Uh, but you have a general feel, so then you close your book, you get a piece of paper, and you say, okay, well, how might this theory of principal agent help me understand this PIIE program? Uh, this program of people graduating from a government-sponsored course in order to get jobs. Okay. And so you write principal and put a circle around it on your blank paper. And below that, of course, it's always below because it's an agent. You write the word agent and put a circle around him. And then you start to play with this theory and think, well, how might a principal and agent, let's assume that our, our uh, education program in Argentina only relates to a principal and an agent, and uh, of course a client, okay, you can even write on your paper client below the agent if you'd like, or, or you don't have to if you don't want. And so you're playing with the idea, well, how does principal agent client, how might that affect graduation rates in different regions? And then you, you think a moment, you think, hmm, well, why would teachers, for example, do things differently than the program administrator might want them to do? You think, oh, well, maybe they're, la they're lazy, but you, you can't stop there because that's not really an economics argument. 
I mean, you, you have to couch it in economic words. So you have to say, well, the, the costs of consuming leisure are higher, uh, provide greater utility than the income they would uh, obtain from teaching, uh, which is the fancy way of saying, well, they're all bloody lazy. Uh, that's one possibility. Second possibility, of course, is that uh, agents have outside employment and therefore they have to decide whether to spend more effort on teaching as opposed to another job. Uh, that's another possibility. And so on your paper, you might draw uh, a line away from the agent to uh, the one to the client and one to another job. And then you might think, okay, well, what are the conditions under which this agent would choose to teach for the government program as opposed to do something else or shirk or, or whatever alternative you've decided? Okay, that's that's one possibility. Then the other possibility is to think, well, what are the tools that the, 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 the principal has? I mean, he has to monitor this agent, and you might write the word monitoring above the principal, and, and then you'll think, well, that has costs as well. Maybe I can play around and think about what costs those are. Or you can think, uh, maybe the principal will hire an enforcer. And so you'll draw a picture of some bully-looking guy, and you'll think, okay, well, what are the benefits of higher output in the program relative to the expense of paying this bully to go around and make sure teachers are teaching correctly? Okay, And as you keep drawing, as you keep labeling, you'll start to become more comfortable with this theory of principal-agent. And because you're applying it to the case, you're going to your brain is going to start to form links that will stay with you in other cases and hopefully for the rest of your life. So that's one example about how to take the readings even if you don't want to read the readings, okay? Let's assume that uh that you're like me or you're like this uh, Argentine teacher and you prefer to consume leisure, don't even read the readings. I mean, look for the main principles and and play with the concepts, play with the theories. That's the most important thing I think you can take away from this course. Um, in the chapter one, they also talk about the common pool problem, and so again, you'll 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 stop and maybe on a piece of paper you'll draw a big circle and in the middle write common pool, and you'll think, well, how does this relate to our um, our job education program? You'll think common pool. Okay, well that probably means that the common pool, common resources, common resources. Why? How? Why should we use it for this as opposed to that? And as you think about these, maybe at this point in time, you you won't have any more inspiration. Okay, and you'll say, well, I really don't know where to go from my little circle labeled common pool to my uh, Argentine Argentina. Uh, job skills training program. So then you'll Google Common Pool and you might look uh, up some famous cases in Indonesia and uh, then you'll see, oh yeah, well that inspires me and you'll come back and you'll play a bit more. And I want to keep my discussion at that level because I don't want to feed you the answer, of course. Uh, in lecture, you'll come back to me and you'll say, oh, Brian, the common pool relates to uh, the case in this way. And I'll nod and I'll look very dissatisfied for a while. And, and then I'll say, hmm, yes, that's a very brilliant insight. So that's the kind of dialectic that I'm very much looking for. Uh, in the class, and I think that uh, you'll be looking for in, in your glorious future. Uh, we have Chapter 5, a primer on performance budgeting. 
you look through this chapter a little bit and you read about some of the basics of a performance budget. Uh, the author, authors, they certainly have strong views about what makes a performance budget, what makes a good performance budget. And you'll maybe you'll stop reading halfway through the paragraph and you'll ask yourself, okay, well, the, the author has told us, the authors, uh, Sean, Shen, have told us something about uh, performance budgets. I don't see any of that in this uh, in this section of the Argentine budget. Uh, why not? And then maybe you'll go back to chapter five and look a bit more. And then uh, they provide uh, some explanations, and you'll go back and you'll say, "Well, you know, uh, that doesn't seem very credible to me. Something else might be going on." And as you go through that process, you become more familiar with the material and also with your your methods of theorizing. Uh, finally, chapter seven, uh, basically the, the same thing, uh, activity-based cost management in the public sector. Uh, and uh, this one seems like an obvious one, at least to me. I mean, uh, okay, well, we want to look at activities and we want to look at activity costs and we want to break things down as much as possible and tie outcomes as much as possible to inputs. Every peso we should be able to attribute to every peso earned by our um, by our student 20 years later okay um, but what's the problem with that and you'll see both in the chapters and the way you apply the chapter to the case you're going to see the various problems with trying to, to, to use the methods that they're talking about in the book so it, you see it's very much your own natural curiosity which is impelling you to into the readings rather than opening the readings and, okay, page 16 tells me that and page 17 tells me that and, hmm, well, you know, that's uh, very, that's very profound and I'm feeling very enlightened. Okay, so let the problem, let your curiosity guide your reading. Okay, we only have uh, two slides to go, thankfully, which is quite good because, as you hear, I'm starting to get a bit hoarse after working all day and coming home to produce slides. So, uh, Again, we're still thinking about uh, pulling all the material from the course together. Uh, we're thinking about readings. And now you have a reading on the slide in front of you which looks much less relevant to the topic at hand, uh, reforming regional local finance in Russia. And um, I mean, okay, we got it right from the aspect that Russia's a federation and Argentina's probably a federation as well. Uh, they have regions uh, and there might be similarities between those two countries. Uh, we don't know what they are. All that, we all that we know so far is that we've got a title of a book about regions. We've got a case from a country and they're reporting lots of things in regions and it it looks to us that maybe we haven't looked up the form of, gov of government for Argentina, but it looks kind of regional to us. And so, again, I'm assuming that we're coming to a new country without any particular uh, background. And I, I, I'm talking in this way, I keep talking in this way throughout the course to try and allay your fears about tackling a new subject. Because so many uh, students, they say, well, I'm not, a, a, I'm not an expert in Kazakhstan. I mean, uh, I, I can't possibly do an analysis. And the idea is to try and and start slowly through it, but always being humble about the results that you achieve. 
because you're just starting. I mean, certainly I would never uh, portray myself as a big expert in Argentine finance uh, if it's something that I'm, I'm just coming into, but that certainly would not stop me in the privacy of my own home from trying all the analyses I could and discussing them with mentors, uh, peers from my own class, etc. So you see this, uh, this book about reforming regional local finance in Russia, and you open the book, you look for the thesis statement as we've been talking, and you have this nagging fear that, well, you're going to miss the main idea of this book. Okay, you've been looking at the case, you've been fishing around the book in order to find things that are relevant from the Russian context to try and think about in the Argentine context. And I'm not telling to compare directly these two countries. All that I'm telling is that take some of the, the, the jargon, the ideas, the words, and try and, and play with them during your case analysis from Argentina. Okay? So you're doing all these linkings and you're worried that, well, I'm, I'm zooming through the Russian book so fast, I'm going to miss the main point. I'm going to miss the whole point about doing a, a public sector financial management analysis. And I would encourage you to put that fear aside. As you go through the book again and again in different cases, you're going to start to feel more comfortable with what this book is telling you and what other books are telling you. And hopefully by the end of the course, you're going to be able to predict the thesis statement of any book. Uh, I, I mean, the, the body of knowledge is, is relatively fixed, and all its authors are telling basically the same thing in different ways. And so if you haven't assimilated that yet, you certainly will. So don't panic. Just keep, just keep at it. Um, <clears throat> you've also noticed in the syllabus that uh, I, I've put readings about capital expenditure in many weeks where capital expenditure is not discussed. And of course, uh, the readings over overlap on purpose, is that maybe we're discussing uh, debt management that week, or maybe we're discussing revenue collection, we could be discussing anything, but you're increasingly seeing the links in capital expenditure between the various case studies, and that's helping you see parallels between the cases on the syllabus. Okay? Uh, at the end of the day, in the the Russian reading, in the uh, in the in the analysis of the U.S. budget, uh, you have a picture in front of you on this slide as well. You, you're you're following basically the same technique. Okay, what's the thesis statement? What's that one main idea that the author is trying trying to communicate to me? If I remember nothing else from this this reading 10 years from now, okay? Um, what, what data have we already seen from the U.S. budget which help us critique these authors and vice versa? What have we seen from these authors that help us critique or use our critical analytical skills as we assess the actual uh, numbers from the budget, okay? Uh, and of course, we use our, our critical thinking skills very strongly. Okay. Uh, in this case, in terms of Vedder and Galloway, uh, does the regression that they provide in the reading make any sense? Uh, and I know that most of us have a pretty good uh, background in statistics, so I feel relatively confident uh, that we can say some very insightful things about the regression analysis that they decided to do. Um, partly the techniques that they use, but also partly the questions they decide to answer. 
And as you remember from the course, we said that there's two ways of defining your question. Okay, uh, define your question as a function of the data that you have. Okay, so define the question narrowly enough that you can answer it with the data available, or make your own data in order to answer the question that you really need to have answered. Uh, you remember from class we talked about corruption, and um, we were discussing the case where the president of a country told us, look, I want you to tell me about corruption in my administration. That's the only question that this president wants an answer to. Uh, all of the data about treasury functions and cash management, that's not going to give you a very reliable answer to his question. So you go out, you find uh, data from Transparency International, from Freedom House, etc. So you go out and fish for data that help you to answer the question. So again, two approaches. Def uh, define the question uh, such that the existing data can answer it, or uh, define the data such that it can answer the existing question. And finally, in conclusion, uh, all of the cases, all of the material on these slides so far and throughout the entire course are aimed at allowing you to practice the four fundamental steps to doing any kind of analysis, whether it's in financial administration, whether it's in economics, whether it's in politics, whether it is in any branch that you decide to pursue now or in the future. Okay, How do you define the problem crisply and cleanly, given the ambigu ambiguities of the real world? Uh, how do we use the model in order to understand uh, the situation that we're looking at? Okay, uh, How do we confront the model and the theories, the hypotheses that we've made? How do we confront those with data? And then finally, how do we critique, criticize, question, confront? How do we challenge everything that we've hypothesized and all the explanations that the pundits have given to us? Uh, so you've seen throughout the course another case from Argentina uh, exactly in the same terms that we've been doing uh, in the previous sets of slides that you've seen so far. Uh, as I've been admonishing us throughout the term, don't worry, uh, you're going to see the concepts again and again. Repetition is the mother of learning. And so if you miss something from these slides, uh, don't panic. You'll certainly see it again in another analysis. Uh, the readings are different, but they overlap. So this is really a chance for you to practice your synthetic thinking skills, uh, which are grossly under-exercised in a world where analysis, uh, analytical skills uh, are, are being taught more and more. Uh, and finally, in the future weeks, uh, we're certainly going to be spending as much time as your interest and abilities allow uh, to putting uh, data from these budgets and financial statements into Excel and of course writing up your conclusions in crisp brief uh, brief briefs uh, for your ministers or future bosses or peers or whoever it is you're writing for. Thank you.